All right, what up, Oasis? Let's go, let's go. I'm so glad to be back with you here tonight. I'm excited to bring God's word. We are finishing this series, Villains in the Bible, which honestly, looking back on it, this series could have been two or three times longer, right? We've only just scratched the surface of a couple of villains that are in our biblical text. But to be honest, I was looking at the calendar and I knew the Super Bowl was coming up. And so let's just blame Taylor Swift for that too, can we? Right? She... <laughs> The Super Bowl and Taylor Swift and all that, it's, it's her fault, right? That's why we're going to cut this series. But we are starting this series, and since we're talking about Taylor Swift, I will start by talking about love. Okay, but I want to talk about love that's like, as seen on TV love. Not like true love for a second, because the entertainment industry is capitalizing on the fact that we as a culture are obsessed with love. They, they, they push all of this information and media at us that surrounds itself around love and we just consume it nonstop and it's doing something to us. And so I want us to start by just looking at like Hallmark movies, right? I know we're not that far from the Christmas season, but in a, in a world where cable TV seems like it's collapsing, somehow Hallmark has hit its stride. Like it's, it's here, it's the same plot over and over and over again with subpar actors. And they, they run it just like, they just feed it to us like garbage because it betrays love. Or can we, I'm gonna call some people out. Can we, can, we, can we talk about the resurgence of reading in society today? Because a couple of years ago, you couldn't get a girl to pick up a book, but all of a sudden Colleen Hoover has got girls skipping nights out to read about love, right? What's going on? Or like, let's talk rom-coms, right? No, no, can you throw this up for me? We got your classics. You got some classics. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, 10 Things I Hate About You. To be honest, I thought those were the same movie, right? 27 Dresses, The Proposal. I have, I think, seen all of those. Sadly, I'm married, like, like there's no avoiding that. Like, I, I, today I was thinking I was praying about it, right, Lord? And I think he reminded me of one that I missed on the list. Can a high school musical be a rom-com? Yeah. yeah. One, two, three, four, seven, eight, twelve. I don't know how many there are, but there's these classic rom-com movies, and we watch these over and over and over again. But the, don't don't worry, the rom-com industry is doing just fine. They just released this movie, Anyone But You, right? 150 million at the box office because we'll pay money to go watch Love. And I haven't even talked. I haven't even started to scratch the surface of reality TV. You could jump on any streaming service. I don't care what your preference is. You can find a hundred different reality TV shows that feed you some kind of love, right? I'll admit, I tuned in a little bit for Gary on The Golden Bachelor. I'll admit that. <laughs> I'll honestly admit that I watched a couple of seasons of Love is Blind, right? It was, it was a weird time, COVID, right? And they dropped this show and I was like, I'm so desperate for some kind of, so I watched it, but I draw the line. I will not watch Love Island. It's just, I'm out. I'm out on that, right? There's, there's these hundreds, if not thousands of different reality TV shows that teach us love. In a culture consumed, obsessed with love, the entertainment industry feeds on that. They prey on that. They make money off of what our craving is. And all the while they're teaching us what love is. They're forming us with these expectations these assumptions, 
this false reality. And if you, if you lean in close for a second, I'll tell you, they're lying to you. It's not real. It's fake love. And every time I consume or engage in one of these things, my heart just breaks that this has become our reality. And in the same way, the entertainment industry has manipulated our sense of love. They also have capitalized on our lack of intellect around Satan. Because in the same way that we are obsessed with love, we love as a people to swing to the other end of the spectrum and get obsessed with fear. So there's something about it. I, I, I can't always put my finger on it, but there's something about it where, where people, they, they like slash come or are drawn by fear in the entertainment industry. They know that. And Satan is a huge character they use to perpetuate that fear. And so they give us movies and books and things and ideas that, that teach us who Satan is. Right? You get movies like The Devil or The Exorcist. Movies that came out when I was in middle school that they made me, my friends made me watch these. They'd pry my eyes open and they'd, they'd teach me this is who Satan is. TV shows like The American Horror Story, which gets renewed season after season. Why? Because people are consuming this. Stuff like Ouija boards or tarot cards. These kind of things that are teaching us, this is what Satan is like. This is what the occult is like. This is what evil is. And I'm telling you, they're lying to you. It's not real. It's a sham. They're capitalizing on our ignorance. We become so filled with false ideas around Satan that it's time tonight for us to just get it straight. We have to start to recognize who he is, what he's doing, because our lives, especially our spiritual lives, have been more formed by Hollywood than the scriptures in some of these areas. For some of us, we picture Satan almost as just the Halloween costume, right? Can you put that next image up? Our friend pulls up in the party looking like this, right? I don't know why she's 12. <laughs> but pulls up at the Halloween party and they've got the, the pitchfork dressed in red and they've got the, the devil horns and we laugh and we joke. And, but when you read about Satan in the scriptures, you're picturing this. Or, or maybe you're not picturing this. Maybe you're picturing uh, anybody Emperor's New Groove. Can I get that picture of Gronk? Or Kronk? Right, you guys seen this? Where he's in the movie, and I, great movie. I love the movie, right? But there's this moment where they're lying to you because he's having this conversation, and on one shoulder is him as a devil, and on one shoulder is him as an angel, and he believes he can navigate these two polar extremes of his personality. But we watch that, and from the youngest of ages, they're already trying to inform you on who Satan or the devil or the enemy is. And it's not true. We start to believe these lies, and none of them is more prominent than the lie that Satan just doesn't exist. This is the most potent and powerful lie in our society today, that he simply doesn't exist. There's a poet, his name is Charles Boudere. He says it like this. He says, the greatest trick the, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist because you cannot be prepared, you cannot defend yourself, and you cannot learn about something that you don't think exists. And so we weave Satan into a long list of famous villains. We get the Mount Rushmore of villains and we've got Darth Vader, right? We've got Joker, we've got Thanos, and then, of course, it's Satan. 
and we fit him in with all these make-believe worlds. So then we approach the scriptures and we read the Bible stories or you listen to the sermons and you start to weave the narrative in your head that the character they're talking about is only as fictitious as all the rest of the villains. But tonight I'm telling you, he's real. I have to start by straight up telling you he's real. We cannot be ignorant that he exists because if we are ignorant he exists, we become unprepared for his attacks. He preys on ignorance. So I'm starting by telling you is real because I want you to be embraced by truth tonight. I'm gonna pull the wool off of some of your eyes so that you might see what God has told us is true. And in doing that, he hates that. Satan hates the fact that we just exposed him in this place tonight. But just because he's real, let me also tell you, you don't need to be afraid. Because this is how Satan works. He constantly has a swing on a pendulum where if we, if we start to believe he's real, if we step out of ignorance, the next move he's gonna make, I can promise you, is he's gonna take you and he's gonna swing you over here to this place where you'll start to fear him. Because that's where he has power. Either you don't believe him or you give him too much power. Yes, he's real. He exists. It's true. Yet he is nothing. Let me repeat that again. He's nothing compared to our God. Nothing. And tonight we're gonna to talk about that. But I need you to start from this place where, where, yeah, he's real. But don't be afraid. Our God, who is more powerful than Satan could ever imagine, is with us here tonight. And he is providing for us every step of the way. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to either Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. We're gonna jump back and forth between these two passages to start. And as you flip there, I'd love to just pray for us. God, I thank you tonight that we get to gather in this space as a community of believers. I thank you for your word and that your word is true. I thank you for the spirit that guides us through this word, helping us to both teach it and to receive it. And I ask that you would protect us in this place, that you and your might and your power would guard us against the enemy's plans in this place, that we would hear truth and we would live informed by it. And we pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. To start, I want us to just understand Satan's origin story. And there's two passages that are gonna help us with that. The first one is Isaiah 14. And directly, Isaiah 14 writes about, it's the, the prophet Isaiah writing about the fall of the king of Babylon, okay? Next, we'll talk about Ezekiel 28. And this directly is the prophet Ezekiel writing about the fall of the king of Tyre. However, scholars believe both of these passages indirectly talk about Satan's origin story where he came from and what he does. So both of these together, we're gonna to piece together as we read them and we're gonna find three conclusions, but I'll start in Isaiah 14 with verse 12. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. If you have a Bible, you can flip to Ezekiel 28. Otherwise it's on the screen behind me, starting in verse 14. It says, you were once anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. 
You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. When we combine these two passages, a couple of things becomes clear. The first one is that Satan had power and prestige in heaven. He had power and he had prestige in heaven. That when you see in this passage, they talk about Satan as a guardian cherub. Now cherub is just another word for angel. However, Satan was not just an ordinary angel. You'll see that he actually was the guardian cherub, the anointed cherub, the chosen cherub, which means he was the cherub above all other cherubs. He was the angel that led all other angels. Isaiah affirms this when he talks about Satan as the morning star. The Hebrew word there is the word halil, and in English it can also be translated as light bearer or even Lucifer. Now maybe you've heard that name, Lucifer. That name, scholars believe, was Satan's angelic name before he was cast out of heaven. And what this is all teaching us is that Satan had power and prestige in heaven because he was God's leader of his angel army. He was the light bearer of all God's angels. He was the anointed one, the chosen one, the morning star of all of God's spiritual beings that we call angels. This gave him power and prestige, but it also led his heart to corruption. Because the second thing we see is Satan's pride caused his downfall. In Isaiah 14, again, we read, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. He's talking about what what Satan was thinking. He says, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You can see here when, when Satan was given power and prestige, it corrupted his heart and he wanted to become God. He wasn't content just to be the highest of all angels. He wanted to be the highest of all beings. He wanted to be worshiped as if he was God. But I have told you already, Satan is nothing compared to God. Ezekiel tells us Satan's heart became proud and in his rebellion against God, God in his power as punishment cast Satan out of heaven, which is why three, now Satan dwells on earth. He dwells here on this earth. Ezekiel 28 says it, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. There's the rebellion. And it says, so I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. I expelled you guardian cherub from among the fiery stones. I threw you and I made a spectacle of you before Kings. Because of Satan's sin, God cast him out of heaven and down to the earth. Jesus himself actually testifies to this in Luke 10 verse 18, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He now dwells here. Because of Satan's sin, he he is cast out of heaven. And so we start in this place tonight realizing three things. He's real. We're starting to call him out and see he's still around. On earth, Satan has power. He has influence. He still is here dwelling. And to prove that to you, I'd ask you to open just any news source. 
I don't care if you're a Fox News person or a CNN news person. You could even be a BuzzFeed news person. (laughs) If you open it, I'll give you two articles before you're confronted with just how active Satan is on our planet today. Before you're struck with the brokenness and the pain and the travesty and the loss and the grief and the suffering. I'll give you two articles on whatever news source you wanna look at before your heart starts to break at the condition of our world. Saying he's still here. He still has power and influence. The brokenness, the hate, the evil, they're rampant and they can all be traced back to God's chief angel who was cast out of heaven because of his sin. You can actually trace it back to a very specific moment. It's a moment in Genesis 3, and you can flip there if you want. It's the third chapter, very at the start of your Bible. And Genesis 3 is the moment where Satan began corrupting the world. Many people call this passage of Scripture the fall, and I'm going to read you verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. <laughs> you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who we know as Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When I was in college, I participated both in Oasis and the Navigators. So we got any Navs people in the room? Okay, let's go. We, uh, I loved being my part at the Navigators, and they, they meet on Wednesday nights. I think they meet in the Union now, if you ever want to check it out. But one night I was there and the the speaker started to read this passage. And as he was reading it, he, he had to stop periodically to wipe tears from his eyes. And he kept reading verse after painful verse of Genesis 3, the text we call the fall. And eventually as he got to the end, he was sobbing over the pages of his Bible. And I'll never forget the line he said after he finished reading it. He looked up at us and he said, Genesis 3 is the saddest moment in human history. And he, in the tears he was weeping proved that he believed it was true. Yet it never will leave me because I was shocked by that statement. I was shocked because as I sat there, I thought about human history. I've been in the classes, I've read some of the books, I've seen, I've seen some of the movies and the documentaries. We've lived through, as, as a people, world wars and genocides and pandemics, atrocities that we can't even begin to articulate in words tonight. Yet he's claiming that a moment some thousands of years ago where a woman ate a piece of fruit in a garden was the saddest moment in human history. And I had to sit with that for a second and through the rest of his teaching, he taught me that it's the saddest moment in human history because from that moment, all all other brokenness ensued. Do you see that? That every pain you've ever experienced, every trauma you've ever walked through, 
every heartache and hardship can find itself traced back to a single moment. The moment, the words we just read that describe the corruption of all the world. On this world, we will never know the perfect life which God created us to experience. Instead, most of our experience is marred by darkness and evil. The pain you felt, the fear you have, the, ex the loneliness you experience, it can all be traced back to a moment. It can all be traced back to a serpent. A serpent who, if you haven't caught on, is Satan. Satan in the garden, he brings temptation to Eve. He's cast out of heaven by God. He finds himself in the garden as, as a serpent, and he, he is responsible for the fall. He is responsible for the brokenness. It's his temptation in the garden that got us to where we are today. And too many people are quick to see the pain of the world and blame God. Yet they forget that the pain of the world does not start with God. It starts with Satan, the author of lies, the deceiver himself. That is where brokenness starts because he wanted to be God and he couldn't. And so he's cast out of heaven and he hates God. He loathes God. And do you know in this, in this pyramid of relationship that Satan hates God, yet God loves you. And so Satan, if he can't be God, the next best thing he can do is take us as humanity down with him. Because if he hates God and God loves you, then he hates you. And if he can't get to God, he's going to do everything in his power to take you out to hurt the heart of the Father. That's his strategy. You can see it play out in the garden in verse 5. He looks at Eve and he says, For God knows that when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan persuaded Eve to follow him to choose him over the world, to reject God's plan, to break all of creation. And the pain we've experienced, it continues from those moments. Adam and Eve, they invited in chaos and evil and darkness into the world, and that hasn't ceased yet. Every day, you and I still feel the effects of humanity's saddest moment, the fall. Yet that was not the only moment of Satan's corruption. It's actually only the start of it. His, his guile and his evil has plagued on throughout human history. Nowhere is it more evident than uh, in Matthew 4. But before we get there, you can see in passages like 1 Peter 5 or John 10, what Satan is still up to today. 1 Peter 5 tells us to be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or John 10.10, 10, it describes the enemy, Satan, as the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. These warn us of Satan's ongoing activity. Yet here's the thing. When we know Satan's real, when we start to understand who he is, passages like James 4.7 4, come to life too. No, will you put that one up there for me? It says, submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When we resist Satan... We can overcome evil through God's strength. Do you see the beauty of a passage like that? In a world plagued by evil, there is hope in God's strength. And I hope when you hear that, you want to tap into it. And so for us, we're going to finish in Matthew 4. 
And we're going to start in verse 1 where it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you want to learn how to resist Satan and stand strong in God's strength, you have to look to Jesus. Because in the narrative we're about to read, Jesus, he encounters Satan three different times with three different temptations, and he comes away victorious. The first one starts in verse 3, and it says, The tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What I didn't tell you here is that when Satan appears to Jesus, it's actually after Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And yet, yeah, you heard that right. I said, for tea, like a month plus 10 days. The, the guy hasn't eaten in 40 days. And you know what the first temptation is? Food, <laughs> right? And, and Satan's not stupid, right? He doesn't come to Jesus and he's like, you want some cauliflower? All right? It's, it's white, it's beautiful, it's the ugly cousin of broccoli, which already sucks. So it's like, he wants to, no, he doesn't, he doesn't do that, right? No, he doesn't come with Brussels sprouts. And these aren't Brussels sprouts like you doctor up at home where you cut them and you cover them in oil and salt and they're nice and they're baked. No, no, like, he doesn't come with Brussels sprouts, right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. No, 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 he doesn't. Anybody? Sardines? Does he... Does he crack the can open and, oh, I'm going to reek like sardines. Does he crack the can open and let Jesus smell? No, 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 no. He, he doesn't bring spam, right? You know what Jesus, you know what Satan comes with? Bread. He puts this in front of me. He says, these stones, why don't you turn them into a luscious loaf of bread? Jesus, Jesus. Why don't, why don't you turn it into some scrumptious sourdough? The champion of all carbs, bread. <laughs> I would be weak, right? So I'd be like, yes, Lord, give me the bread, you know? But he, he comes with bread. And I, and I take a moment to tell you this because it's so important that Satan doesn't come tempting you with things that are easy to turn away. Wouldn't that be nice if Satan showed up and he started pitching you unsavory deals? He's trying, to, he's trying to pitch you cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and sardines and spam, but he's not. He's not stupid. Satan, what he's doing is he's coming to you in your weakness and he's offering you something less than what God desires for you. Let me show it to you. He comes to you when you're angry and he offers you revenge. He comes to you when you're lonely and he offers you fake community. He comes to you when you're tired and he offers you laziness. He comes to you when you're sad and he offers you numbness. He comes to you when you're hurt and he offers you momentary relief. Whether that's booze or drugs or sex or TV or, or distraction, he offers you this momentary relief, but don't for a second think he can actually offer you healing. He can't. But he'll bring you momentary relief only for it to, the pain and the hurt and the darkness to come surging back and crush it. Satan, he comes to us in our weakness and he offers us something less than what God desires for us. And it's tempting. Yet Jesus, he responds to Satan's first temptation. And his first temptation was for Jesus to seek provision outside of God. 
And it's the same for us. Satan wants us to look outside of our heavenly father to find what you need. But Jesus responds, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in doing so, Jesus reminds us, God has everything you need. God has everything you need, everything, forever and always. Then the second temptation comes, and it's in verse 5. It says, the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said to them, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For as it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. And in Jesus' response, we can see how Satan was trying to get Jesus to test God. But part of us should wonder what the actual test was, right? What's the test for? What is he trying to get God to reveal? Because in the first temptation, Satan goes after God's ability to provide. Yet in the second temptation, Satan is attacking God's ability to love, to care for his children. Because what Satan is describing here is he took Jesus to the highest point of the temple, this is the southeast corner of the temple. It's some 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. And because I, I know we don't know anything about the Kidron Valley, I want to put this in context, which we'll understand. And so, Noah, there's a picture of the Campanile. The Campanile is about 150 feet tall. And so I need you to imagine the Campanile stacked on top of a Campanile, stacked on top of a Campanile. And if you were to walk all those steps to the top, and you get up there winded, huffing, and you meet Satan up there and he offers you jump off. This is the temptation in front of Jesus. 450 feet above the Kidron Valley, he's offered to jump, to put God to the test. And the question has never been, can God save Jesus? It's not the question, it's not the test. Everybody knows that God can save Jesus. Right? Satan even abuses scripture to prove that exact point. But the question is not if God can, it's if God will. Does God love his son enough to save him? And without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus rebukes Satan for even tempting him. Yet I'll turn to you and I'll say, if this temptation came to you in one of your weak, hard moments, would you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you? And I'm not talking some kind of nursery rhyme love, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible, yeah, let's go. Some of you grew up in church, right? Like, it's like, I'm not talking about that kind of love. Do you know God loves you? When you're walking through a really, really hard, dark season, in those moments, at your weakness, do you know God loves you? Three years ago, one of my closest friends, his name was Manny, he took his life. I actually have a tattoo to remember him and he took his life about three years ago in January. And I was actually up in one of these classrooms prepping a sermon and you'll never believe what it was about. It was about God's goodness. And I'm prepping this sermon about to preach to Oasis about how God is good. And I get a phone call that my friend, since I, it's been about a decade we'd been friends, he, he, he took his own life. And Allie, my wife, she shows up in the parking lot 
And I remember I had to meet her out there in the middle of January and tell her that the, the person, not only that I loved, but that she loved was no longer on this earth. And I remember when I told her the words left my mouth and my body hit the floor. And I laid on that cold snowy asphalt in the middle of January and she laid there with me. And a, and a week later, when I had to go to the funeral of my 23-year-old friend and I had to walk up to the casket, she held my hand. And two weeks ago, when it was the three-year anniversary and I was sitting at Cool Beans like I typically do reading my Bible, I got a text from her saying, hey, I know today's hard for you. I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, in my life's hardest moment, I never questioned once if she loved me. Do you know God loves you? That in life's hardest moments, when everything seems to be falling apart, do you truly know God loves you? He's never left you and he never will. The final temptation, it starts in verse eight. And it says again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give to you if you just simply bow down and worship me. Satan takes Jesus to this mountain and he shows him the power and, and, and the wealth and the prestige and the success that's right at the tip of his fingers. And all he has to do is worship Satan. And alas, we've come full circle. Because if you remember in heaven, Satan wanted to be worshiped. And now on earth, he's still seeking to be worshiped. And his ploy has never changed. The third temptation is the same. Satan, he wants you to worship him. And when most of us hear that, we, we feel like that's a pretty distant temptation. And the fact of like devil worship or the occult or, 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 or any of that Satanism that feels pretty distant for most of us. That's not really a struggle we would struggle with, but I also wanna warn you, if Satan can't get you to directly worship him, his next move will get you to worship anything besides God. He will direct your affections just slightly. And, and you're not worshiping Satan, but God, I mean, he's ticked down on the priority list because I, I, honestly, school, school's hard. It's so hard sometimes. And, and I'm in class all day and I got homework all night and, and, and I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I got all this stuff and there's clubs and activities and organizations that I gotta be a part of because I gotta build the resume because I gotta get a job. And we feel all the stress of that and we don't even know what happened, but all of a sudden we haven't read our Bibles or prayed or sat with God or thought about God in who knows how long. Or work, man, work, I show up early, I leave late, I got too much stuff on my plate, I got all these things going on, I'm trying to work for the next promotion, I'm trying to make a living, I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do, and I come home at the end of the day and I'm just tired. And all of a sudden I don't have room in my schedule anymore for small group or church or Christian community. Or, or we believe the lie that somehow we can't have a family without a spouse. And so some of us single people in here, we become consumed with constantly scanning for the next prospect. Some of you, this is really real because you came in here tonight, not thinking about the creator of all heaven and earth and the chance you have to worship him, but you were thinking if you could run into that cute person in the foyer. And it's never that you, you didn't like God. It's never that, that you didn't care about God. You've always been a Christian, 
You just have a lot of other things distracting you from truly worshiping God. And if that's the case, if it's not God you are worshiping, Satan wins. This is his playbook. He hasn't changed it. He wants you to doubt God, to doubt his provision and his love. He wants you to worship him. And these are the temptations Jesus overcame. His first victory over Satan came in the wilderness, but Jesus' ultimate victory came on the cross. Hebrews 2 describes it. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he being Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds death. 1 John 3 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus, the son of God, he came in human form. He was the perfect human that we could not be. He lived his life with no sin, yet he still took on the crucifixion. And three days later, he rose out of the grave. And when he did, he destroyed the power that death has held over us. Hear this. Jesus' crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection broke the power of the enemy. They destroyed his work. Because of the cross, we are now free. John 8 says, so if the son, of, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. No longer are we slaves to the enemy. No longer are we shackled to death. No longer are we broken or rejected or alone. No, to all who come to Jesus, Jesus Christ has set you free. The enemy has no hold on you. You are a new creation, completely free, restored, and loved because of Jesus. And if I can get an amen for anything tonight, amen. Because of Jesus, we are free no longer shackled to the enemy. Yes, he is real, but his reign over you ended when Jesus came into your life. The addiction that's plagued you, there's freedom in Christ. The sadness he's holding over you, there's hope in Christ. The insecurity that infiltrates your every thought, there's healing in Christ. And it keeps getting better as powerful as the freedom that Jesus has offered us is. There is still brokenness in the world and we are testimony of that. We've all still experienced that. There is a, a part of you that, some of you that got stuck at the beginning of the message because I talked about how Satan was cast out of heaven onto the earth and you can't understand why God would give Satan authority or power. It, and I can't fully answer that question. I don't know why Satan got to come to earth rather than just being destroyed for his sin. I don't know why Satan got to appear in the garden as a serpent. I don't know most of why God does what he does on this earth, but I do know this. Satan's authority, it's coming to an end. Our God, who always was and always is and always will be, has invited us into eternity with Jesus. But he has not extended that same invitation to Satan. Satan's eternal destiny is drastically different than ours, and you see it in Revelation 20. It says, and the devil who deceived, the devil who was the deceiver, who from the beginning deceived, who always has been deceiving and will always try to deceive you, the devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. There he will be tormented day and night forever and ever, amen, which means let it be so. Satan, the worst of all villains, will suffer the worst of all fates. 
God will punish him for every piece of evil he has ever done. God in his justice will not let a tear you shed nor a trauma you experienced go unreckoned. Satan will pay for what he has done forever and ever and ever and ever. And we will dwell with God in paradise forever and ever and ever and ever. This is the reality of the gospel message. One day there will be no more pain. One day there will be no more hardship, no more brokenness, no more evil. The perfection we were meant to experience in Eden, we will one day experience in heaven. Satan's real. He has some power, but he's nothing compared to our God. And Jesus has come to offer you life, full and abundant. Will you walk in it? Pray with me.